We've heard the numbers and we've seen the figures. We know that it's considerably warmer than it was decades ago. We've even seen a graph of CO2 versus time. We know how extraordinarily dangerous it would be if the world got two degrees warmer. But what do these numbers really mean? Not everyone is easily engaged with numbers and figures. Yet it's important for everyone to understand climate change. That's why there are people trying to engage the public in the discussion of climate change without using numbers. Instead, they use art, storytelling, and imagery to paint a picture of a warming world. By doing this, they hope to engage people who may not have been part of the discussion otherwise. And today, we're talking to one of those people. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. If you're a patron of the podcast, be sure to check out the bonus material all this month on patreon.com sparkdialogue. This month, we even have a special live talk from our guest today. If you're not a patron and you want to become one, check out patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hi, I'm Carolyn Hall. I am a marine ecologist, a dancer, and a communications coach, and a member of Works on Water. Water is integral to our lives, and something we're all drawn to. This is particularly true for Carolyn. She's always felt the pull of water, and it's always fascinated her. I grew up in Southern California, and not near a beach, but every time I went to a beach, and especially tide pools, it just felt like I was seeing a different world that for some reason I knew I was connected to and it fascinated me and I kept that connection and fascination to water even when I wasn't working in water in any way I really came back to marine ecology later after being a dancer and after working in the arts world because it never left me this this connection to water and 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 needing that needing that connection to the outdoors and some something bigger than me. And so eventually coming back to water and then incorporating my, my artistic practice also into my communication with water and my science around water, I finally found a way that felt like I was engaging my whole self. The story of climate change is written in the water, perhaps even more so than in the land. From melting ice to rainfall to raising water levels, Water and climate change is a part of everyone's story. Even for those who may not understand the science behind it or the math that supports it. But luckily, numbers are not the only way to communicate climate change. Carolyn thinks it is important to engage everyone. I feel it's important to engage as much of the public as possible around climate change data and climate change impacts because it will affect everyone. And so far, a lot of our efforts, I say our, I mean, people who are concerned about climate change, a lot of our efforts to engage across all communities has not been easy and has not been equally received. And yet, no one will escape these impacts. Some will be drought, some it'll be fire, some it'll be flooding, issues with crops, issues with losing their homes and land. You know, I just think that Everyone needs to understand that it is, it is a global issue. For Carolyn, her medium is art. It is imagination. She brings people into a world where she paints a picture for them, sometimes literally. With art and performance, climate change becomes a story. 
the projects I do that reach out about climate change and climate data and climate impact, they all, they, those projects all involve the arts in some way, whether it's, um, participating in creative, uh, experiential walks with props and using imagination and your senses, or whether it's actually sitting down and drawing or writing your feelings about your local shorelines or coasts or the fish in the waters near you, what you know about them, what you don't know about them, but something that creates a creative engagement so that it's not just facts and data, which can be overwhelming, which can be dry, which can be complicated and hard to understand and can be pretty um, grim, but creative ways that use imagination and artistic ways of integrating into your own world. I find that that creates more access in a different way, more personal relationships. Unless you've seen the effects of climate change firsthand, it may be difficult to imagine how it would affect you in the coming decades. This is where imagery can work. Carolyn urges the people she works with to envision what their own city might look like. Well, I think it's really, really difficult to imagine what the future will look like when you just get modeling percentages and numbers and, you know, sea level will rise this much. It'll be this much more humid or this much more rainfall or this much, this much less rainfall. And you can hear those things and you can say, okay, but percentages of what? And will that actually be here or will that be, you know, a state away or a country away? And so when you focus on where people live and they're familiar with what it looks like, they're familiar with what it feels like, they're familiar with what they're able to do there. And then you ask them to start to think like, okay, so if the water rose three feet, what would, you, what would be underwater? And if it were underwater, then how would you need to get from this point here to that point over there? Would you need a boat? Would you have to swim? Would you be able to build a bridge? And what kind of materials would you need in this future to build that bridge? Or there's a building on a shoreline. And if that, if that building is going to be inundated with water periodically, then how can that be used in a way that's adapting or assimilating that's working towards a sustainable or resilient use of that building as opposed to, well, it can no longer function the way it did, so we should just knock it down. One of the projects Carolyn is involved with is called Sunk Shore, which takes place in New York City. This is part art and part walking tour, which ran before COVID and hopefully will run again sometime soon. This is something you can actually do as a tourist, really get to see another part of New York City, if you will. Carolyn is one of the creators and tour guides. So far, my co-creator, Clorinda Macklow, and I have only done Sunk Shore in New York City. But we've done it in a few different locations, uh, on the Hudson River, on the East River, and twice on Governor's Island, which is right in the middle of New York Harbor at the mouth of the East River. And um, Sunk Shore, Sunk Shore is, it's a walking tour. It's a walking tour that goes into the future. So we time travel. It asks of the participants to wear props, do some collective engagement in order to 
make it through different periods of the time leaps, like they all have to row together in a boat, perhaps. Um, it asks them to imagine things from their senses, from smell, from sound, from touch, like the air on their skin. And it asks them to really engage their imagination, as I was talking about previously. It really, it really requires and it requires them to be fully present in the experience. And so we, we create a narrative that will walk them through from the past stuff that they need to know, like past history about how Manhattan and the rest of New York City came to be. How did, the, how did we end up with a bay? What were the, there was a glacier here at one point. What did that look like? You know, through the different years of the peoples who have lived here, from the Native Americans to the first, the first European colonizers, through to the making of the United States, and to the present. So we walk them forward, and then once we're in the present, we prepare them for time travel, and we start dropping information about climate data that will inform them of conditions changing. What are these changes? It's more than just rising water. It's also how climate change will affect everything, from the ecosystem to drinking water. So, being a marine ecologist, I am keenly focused on the fish and the, the water ecosystem. So, one of the things we do talk about is how the creatures in the water will change. The waters will be warming, there will be more storms, and there'll be more runoff, so there will probably be more pollution in the water. So... The species that will be in the water will need to be tolerant of warmth and tolerant of higher levels of pollutants. And there are species that are. They're not necessarily the ones that are here now. We could be getting a lot more invasive lionfish. Lionfish are these voracious, um, crazy, beautiful, spined fish that originated in the Indo-Pacific, but they were introduced into the Atlantic and are slowly moving up. Actually, not so slowly anymore. They are moving up the coast. They've already have pretty healthy populations in the Gulf of Mexico and around Florida, and they are moving up. We've seen them in New York waters. They will eat anything and everything in their path. So they like warm waters. They eat a lot. They'll probably be pretty dominant in the future if we don't figure out a way to keep them from becoming so. We also talk about how various trees that need certain you know, the, the exchange of seasons and lower levels of humidity, uh, they probably won't do so well here in another 50, 75 years. There'll be a more humid ecosystem, more like Florida. And so we maybe will have citrus trees instead of flowering cherries. Who knows? We talk a lot about New York's water supply, drinking water supply, comes from reservoirs that are upstate. Those reservoirs have naturally filtered water, which is amazing. It's from the ecosystem around it. It's from the trees that are there. It's from the rocks and the minerals that are there. And that water is clean and it's naturally filtered. And yes, it's also clean when it comes to New York, but it comes from a very clean state. So as temperatures warm, and we're seeing this in other parts around the United States, some of these more cold climate reservoirs are getting out more algal blooms. And so that's lots of little plants growing in warming waters 
that actually affect the cleanliness of the water, and especially if they're toxic algal blooms, and they it makes that water unfit to drink. If that happens, and this is one of the scenarios we talk about in the more dire future, if our reservoirs become clogged with toxic algal blooms, we will not have those naturally filtered water is available for us to drink. And the tree population will change. They'll probably start migrating north, as we're already seeing in some more mountainous regions. If we were to go on a tour with Sunk Shore, we would be able to visualize what New York City would be like in the future, or even in the past. But through the power of podcasting, we are actually able to offer you a tour right now today with not but your headphones and your imagination. First, we're going to step into our time machine and head to 13,000 years ago, long before New York City was actually a city. Are you familiar with what the, the skyscrapers look like at the, at the base of Manhattan? Like New York City, those sort of famous, where the new one world, the Freedom Tower is, and where a lot of those downtown skyscrapers are, right at the tip of Manhattan. Okay, so keep those, close your eyes, and have those in mind. You're looking at them from across the water. Because it's 2021. Now I'm going to ask you to see the mountain of ice in front of you that is 200 feet taller than those skyscrapers. That mountain of ice is a glacier that is sitting on top of Manhattan. It's sitting on top of what we know as New York Harbor, and it is now slowly starting to retreat. As it's retreating, you feel, you feel the gravelly ground underneath you. The ice, the slippery ice is disappearing and it's turning to gravel. And if you listen carefully, you can hear a roar. That roar is the Hudson River about to break through an ice dam. Oh, it's breaking through and it is filling the, the Hudson. It's filling New York Bay. It is filling it with fresh water that has melted from the glaciers. And you can feel the rush of the wind. You can feel the spray of that water on your skin. Okay, jumping forward to 1400. Shift your weight of your feet. You can feel soft sand giving way and crunch of oyster and clam shells under your feet. The brininess of the water is rich in your nostrils. You can smell that brininess and the fish and the seaweed. You can hear the birds circling overhead, calling and diving for those fish. You can hear the Lenape calling from canoe to canoe as they're, as they're planning to set up their fishing camps on the shorelines. Maybe you can even smell their campfires. Now let's step into our time machine once more. This time we will zing into the future to the year 2050. Okay, it's 2050. The sea level has risen two feet since 2021. It's humid, it's summer, and instead of it being in sort of the 80s regularly, it's in the 90s regularly, it rains a lot, it's hot, 
And we're going to be walking along this shoreline, except where there used to be a sidewalk. It's now flooding all the time from the storms. So it's become a canal. And in order to get from where we are to that dry land over there, we need a boat. So let me unpack this boat in my backpack. All right, we all need to get in this boat together. And you're going to pull out your multi-purpose tool, which looks like a fan, but right now it's going to turn into an oar. And we all need to stroke together to, to row our boat down this canal to get from where we are now to that building over there. Are you guys all ready? Okay. Oars up and stroke. Stroke. Okay, so then this is literally in our tour. This is a group of probably eight to ten people, obviously not in COVID time, eight to ten people clustered into a group with myself or Clorinda leading leading this boat, which is either a piece of fabric that's wrapped around us or we're all holding onto a, a rope together. And we're rowing from one end of a sidewalk to another, but we are in water and we are rowing to get to another site. Life in New York City would be radically different in this world. So on the more, um, what I want to say, superficial level, I guess, in a way, transportation would, would definitely change. Uh, a lot of our, our heavily traveled city roads are perimeter roads. And so, yes, they will probably build higher banks. And yes, they will probably build, build those roadways up. But the problem is that there will be more rain, there'll be more storm surge. And I just don't think it's going to be as uh, navigable for cars. And I'm worried about subways. I mean, Hurricane Sandy certainly knocked out quite a bit of our subway system for a while because of the saltwater intrusion, or just water intrusion, but the salt, of course, carries all sorts of issues for electrical, <laughs> electrically run buildings and transportation. So there'll be a lot more water-based transportation. Ferries and other kinds of boats would probably be much more common. I'm sure people would have more private boats and more private sort of like, I guess the equivalent of boat scooters, which we sometimes when we see things go by in, in the water around Governor's Island, we're like, oh, there goes a private such and such. You know, we, we use, we use what's around us to imagine if we're in 2075 to imagine that people are jetting around on their little independent instead of cars or scooters, their little water scooters. Less superficial. Uh, not that that was really superficial, but less more more serious is how a our water supply would be impacted um fresh water will become more scarce it'll become a pretty intensely competitive commodity so how do people get fresh water what sort of new innovations will be necessary in order to have enough drinking water for everyone i mean there's purifying urine there's desalinating salt water there's collecting more rainwater in a way that actually it can be purified and reused. Um, New York isn't fit for this, but I was just talking to a friend, a colleague who is designing nets to catch fog in coastal regions like Chile or Morocco, where indigenous peoples probably, they did this, it's been done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but now there's a need to actually create running water from fog in places where glaciers are disappearing or there's less actual rainfall or snowpack. But a Manhattanite or 
anybody in Brooklyn. I mean, we imagine that there'd be, there'll be high competition for a higher land living. The shorelines that are, that flooded in Sandy will be more permanently flooded. And so people will have to move inland. And of course, that means that communities that are already, their infrastructure is already less attended to, the more disadvantaged, the more underrepresented communities will be, will be put in danger and we'll have to figure out how to incorporate safer housing for everyone in new locations. As people come and go on these tours, minds change. Suddenly it's not just about numbers and figures anymore. These people actually can see what the effects may be. And the response is incredible. We get some amazing responses. I will I will say that in New York, most people agree that climate change is happening. They may not agree what the causes are, but they're not in denial about climate change. They also may not know how to engage. So really what we're doing is we're providing an opportunity for people to sign up so it's self-selected and then come in and try to feel what it is to get more personal with it so that they do become more engaged. And overall, people are very... They have fun, but they also are getting a lot of dark information too, like the dire circumstances of fresh water or the the chance that Governor's Island, if it is a great site for water collection purification, it'll become its own city state and will be highly protected because of the resource. You know, like there, there will be different, there will be a lot of migrants. And so immigration and, and human resources and human need will be pretty significant right? Like it's, we talk about this, we talk about the dark things, but we, but we do it in a way that allows them to put themselves in the narrative. So most people come away thinking, oh, I've never thought about sea level rise affecting me in that way. Or I've never thought about what it might feel like to get more like Florida up here. And what does that mean for my gardens? And what does this mean for my family, my home? You know, and so it becomes more tangible. It becomes more tangible. And then, yeah, people want to know what can they do. And I think Clorinda and I were just talking about this. Rather than talking, I mean, we offer plenty of, we offer tons of data at the end. We give them a pamphlet with all sorts of links and all sorts of data, everything that covers what we talk about. But we, and so there is plenty of places to go if you want to talk about limiting or getting rid of fossil fuels and how do you do that. And that's important, period. But um, we also want to offer ways for them to think about adaptation and resiliency for them and their communities and for extending it beyond, you know, using LED light bulbs. How do you think greater? How do you think about where you live and who matters to you and what it takes as a community to adapt and move forward in a sustainable way. So it could be about what do we need to do to our shorelines to create resiliency so that our homes aren't lost to storm surge and not only our homes, but our neighbors' homes, because we really are all connected. Or how do we think creatively about new freshwater resources? Or how do we think creatively about what plants we should be planting now to sort of shore up our land in a way that creates resiliency. What innovations are down the road and for, for algae or jellyfish-based plastics? Does that interest you? Do you want to 
explore that further. You know, biofuels, how do we get more involved in biofuels? So we introduce a lot of innovative ways of thinking for adaptation and resiliency, but, and also, um, some more practical ways to think, how do we, how do we protect this, these communities that we have grown to love? People come into these tours for a variety of reasons and with various expectations. Some are looking for ways to engage and to do something. Some people want to hear a different narrative about climate change. And some are just people looking to do something different on a Saturday afternoon. We have also given the tours to classes, so like college classes. Um, and they often come in with no expectation. And so you get the mixture of kids who are like, I don't know what we're doing here, to people who are super engaged right at the top. And what's fascinating is to see how different parts of the tour draw them in, whether it's like everybody having to wear silly perspectacles that help them have a new perspective of the future, which are just lensless wireframe glasses that we make, or whether they, when we ask them to put on caution tape around their ankles and say that those are water and dry resistant toxin resistant booties for when they're walking through sewage storm surge, or whether it's they're looking at a building and thinking, oh, this is no longer a fort. This is now an aquaponic center, a giant state-of-the-art aquaponic center where we're raising fish and growing greens and the nutrients and the water is being recycled. And that's sustainable. So it depends on the individual, but we really provide as many, as many ways in as possible. Another project that Carolyn works on shatters the boundaries between disciplines. This one, named Works on Water, combines science and art to tell the story on climate change. Works on Water is a, it's a collective. It's a, an organization that focuses on art that is, that is about water and water issues. So made of, in, or about water. Um, it started with a group of artists who were already focusing on artists and curators, I should say, that were already focusing on art that was, well, much of it was about climate change or sea level rise or tides and such, but also also freshwater and migration. And so the collective is all about creating a community that has this in conversation, this, this tie of art about water. And key to the collective is engaging the public around the art. So much of it can be performative or outdoor installations, but art that is to be is to be interactive on some level and is there to create discussion. The artists involved on Works on Water work in a diversity of mediums. Stowe Len is one of our uh, core team members and Stowe makes Stowe's been making art from polluted waterways for years. And he does it by actually going on the water or in the water and, and creates prints from the pollution on paper. They're beautiful. And he actually just did a residency at a wastewater treatment plant in Virginia as a way to, as a way to engage the public more with what a wastewater treatment plant does. That's a small example of Stowe's work. He does a lot more. <laughs> um, then um, there are, well, there, Clorinda and I are both part of Works on Water. And so Sunk Shore sort of came out of our involvement with Works on Water. 
Um, another artist, Elizabeth Velasquez is her name, who's been working with Works on Water as a resident and a community member for a while. She does rituals around shorelines and waters and, and lost and lost people, like people who have been lost. And so what is it to become part of the land? And what is it to become part of the shorelines? And what is it to remember people by, by using water as part of that ritual? And some other ones, people make handmade paper from recycled water and recycled paper, and then have projects where visitors to our residency can make their own paper and they talk about what's in the what's in the paper where it came from what's where's the water from and then usually have writing projects around that and the prompts are about waste or about water uh, we've had writers come talk about migration and what it is to travel over water and what it is for that water to be both home and barrier so there are many different approaches to how people relate to water how it tells different stories of our interactions with it, of our dependence on it, of our connections to it, and our basically how integrated it is in our lives on so many levels. Besides art, Works on Water also spans over to social justice, working with various partners. They realize that, like so many things, water quality and access often depends on race or economic status. And one such partnership has been with the New York City Department of City Planning. And also with another organization called Culture Push, which is another art meets sort of social practice and social justice organization. And the idea behind partnering with the city was that they create every 10 years this comprehensive waterfront plan. And for 2020, they really wanted to engage with more communities that had not been reached and to try to address the issues of environmental justice that are around our city and shoreline access. And so we partnered with them in order to create a project, which is called Walking the Edge. And ideally, Walking the Edge was going to be literally a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week marathon of walking as close to or on 520 miles of New York City's shorelines. And in doing so, we would literally traverse all the shoreline communities. And the idea of that was while doing this project, there would be artist interventions and community discussions with all three organizations, Works on Water, Culture Push, and the New York City Department of City Planning that would engage around what do you think of your waterfront? How do you feel you can engage with it? Do you feel safe there? What do you enjoy about it? How do you use it? How do you see it being used? You know, really getting people to engage with shorelines and waterfronts in their community so that they would feel a sense of ownership and the city could hear what was needed from places that they hadn't necessarily been hearing from. Now, because of COVID, like so many things, Works on Water has gone virtual. You can check out some of the installations on Instagram, and you'll be able to find some of these in the show notes on sparkdialogue.com. We weren't able to do it in real life because <laughs> COVID came. We ended up doing it uh, virtually by having artists take over our Works on Water Instagram. So we allowed the artists who were interested in doing interventions along the shoreline to take over our Instagram for a week. And 
put up art, any sort of art that they wanted to on Instagram. And then in the text, they could, they could record also anything they wanted to. But in the text, we asked them each to sort of put a prompt to, to ask the viewers to think about water in a way that they were thinking about it. And it could be just literally about a shoreline near you, or it could be in relationship to things that were, you know, sociocultural things that were happening during, during the year. It could be in relationship to COVID. It could be in relationship to Black Lives Matter. And so there was a, there's basically a, a log of reactions to, to, from May through September, each week there was a different artist that is reacting through the lens of water to the year. It was pretty powerful actually. And that's still on our Instagram and can also be found through our works on water website. We also had, since works on water went virtual, we did have a residency, but the residency was just for artists, a very, very few artists (laughs) to have a space because many, many rehearsal studios, many, schools, everything was shut down. And a few artists were, many artists were living in their own homes, having no place to do their artistic practice. So we were able to open up six spaces in the house for artists to use with masks, with social distancing. That was great that we were able to provide that. And it was great that Governor's Island was able to provide that for us. We also had a video show, a virtual video show which had an international group of short films that were submitted and discussions around those. And they were all based on water in some way, shape or form. We did have some virtual, some actually pretty powerful virtual engagement. And I think many organizations figured out how to pivot to be virtually inclusive, but it was nice to, because we went virtual, we were actually able to become more internationally connected in some ways and include artists that we probably wouldn't have necessarily been able to include. So let's say we could indeed walk all around the waterfront around New York City. What would it be like? What would we see? It turns out that the view along the water isn't always the same as the conception we might have of New York City from the land. Walking around the water shows another side of the city, one where you can see nature and industry, beaches and pollution. Well, New York City shorelines are incredibly diverse. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's a super heavily urbanized metropolis. But there are places in, in Staten Island, in Brooklyn, in Queens, in northern Manhattan that are still natural ish. (laughs) I'll say ish because they're all impacted by how much urbanization there has been. But there are, there are beaches, there are rocky shorelines, there are marshlands, there are salt marshes. I wouldn't say any of them are in pristine condition, but they are in a natural condition for being in an urban area. So those do exist, but more often you'll see shorelines that have been hardened in some way. When I say hardened, sometimes it's, it's literally a wall. The land ends at a wall and then there's water. It could be piers or docks. It could be landscaped uh, interaction with the water. Like there could be um, beaches that have been created or sort of shorelines that have been created that are sort of safe for interaction because of currents and tides. And there's, there's a lot of public safety issues. 
but there are a lot of really neglected and inaccessible shorelines as well, where, you know, it's just sort of urban decay, where piers have fallen to ruin or there are walls and fences that are that are just at the end of a street that don't seem to be providing any function at this point other than to keep you from the water. Although there are also fences and such things around sewage drainage drainage pipes and combined sewage overflow pipes where you don't want to go in the water there because you could potentially be exposed to untreated sewage. So it's a huge, huge mix. There has been a concentrated effort to make more accessible sort of edge greenways around all the different boroughs to greater or lesser extent. But many of those greenways don't have very many access points to the water. And so there are places where there are kayak launches and, you know, different kind of boat launches and, and plenty of working docks as well. It's still, it's still a, a very busy harbor for big ships and barges and tugboats and all of that. But in terms of like, like a person on foot, like any regular resident of New York City, finding clean and accessible places to enter the water is still fairly limited. As with Sunk Shore, participants come away changed, being able to see their earth in a new way, being able to dialogue on effects of climate and water with increased knowledge. Walking the Edge is focused on the future of these, of these shorelines, and how the waterfronts will be incorporated and engaged into our communities, how we desire them to be and how they also will need to be. That encompass all these different uses, recreation, a working waterfront, there's wildlife, you know, how, how can we figure out a more harmonious and functional way of working with our waterfronts as they are now and thinking about sea level rise and at-risk communities. What needs to be considered to make them safer with storm surge, safer with sea level rise. Because there's a lot of all that hardening of shorelines actually doesn't allow much forgiveness for storm surge. It just creates a place to destroy what we've put there. So how do we create borders that can actually absorb some of that storm surge? Is that possible? Where is that possible? How do we, how do we improve our infrastructure along the shorelines to be more flexible with incursion of waters and increased heat and increased rain. So all these questions are part of the dialogues around what is the future of our shorelines and how do we clean up polluted areas so that people who are living along shorelines that have been deeply neglected for literally centuries how do we make them as desirable as, you know, going out to Coney Island and Brighton Beach and having a day at the beach? Like, how do we, how do we do that? Because people still, like, there are lots of beautiful beaches here too, and people fish in New York waters. So, you know, it's, it's very used, it's a very used shoreline. It's just not equitably taken care of. 
We humans have a connection to water. We are drawn to the waves at the beach, to a babbling brook. There's something peaceful that calls us there. It means something to us. Illustrating climate change through the lens of water can really connect us in a way that mere numbers and figures cannot. Water is life. We can't live without water. We are over 70% water. Our planet is over 70% water. The connection we have to water is innate and we cannot be untethered. (laughs) So to understand, I mean, that's sort of a poetic way to think about it, but I think what artistic representations of our relationship to water do is they help to reintroduce that idea that we are connected in a literal and in a poetic way. When you talked about, you know, being inspired standing at the ocean's edge or at or a, at a river or a waterfall or, you know, in the rain, you know, we do we do or in snow. I mean, I was so charmed by snow this year because we haven't had it and that's another form of water right like we we do have a pretty poetic relationship with water and it's so it's reconnecting that in a way that makes it seem like something you want to steward you want to take care of you want to have a long-term relationship with and help reverse some of the practices that we have been doing for so long that actually risk taking that water from us. It's about art and imagery. It's about the power of stories. It's about how we see water and how it changes our lives. All of these things can take just the numbers of climate change and understanding what is happening to our climate to make it more visceral, more real, and more understandable. Through this, the artists involved in these projects, and Carolyn alike, are hoping to reach people in all different walks of life to understand climate change, which is a part of all of our stories. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Again, you can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of the places where you like to get your podcasts. Again, thanks to all my patrons for helping to support this podcast. And we'll see you again in one month with another episode. Background music you heard are clips from I Dunno by Grapes, Start to Grow, the CDK mix by Analog by Nature, It's For My Fly Girl by B.O. Crew, and Mountains by Ribeiro. These songs are licensed under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.